From the unexplained to the mundane, come join us on a journey to the fringe. Hello and welcome to Journey to the Fringe. You may recognize us from our ad in next year's Sears catalog. We are your podcast hosts, some of whom are only now realizing some puns are better written than spoken, Taylor and Chelsea. And today, I thought we would go a little exotic and just have some fun. We've had a few like more real-world implications stories the last little while, and international in nature. I thought we would stick to that, but in a more fun way. We're doing international alien abductions. It'll be a good time. Oh, yeah. I'm excited for this. So I have three stories, two out of South America, one out of Asia, and I think I was going to go through alphabetically, but I don't know what country technically the last one takes place in, or what country to categorize it as. I love that that was how you organized it. It's funny the way writing an episode will come together. (laughs) But I need to also ask you, international alien abductions what kind of aliens are we talking about we're talking about the nefarious space dwellers okay good because the other one doesn't suit our podcast (laughs) (laughs) no we're not turning into a true crimes podcast sorry guys okay Okay, I'm excited. I thought it would be fun just because we have said that sometimes UFOs can be a cultural phenomenon where they change depending on the cultural background of where it takes place. So I thought it'd be fun just to look at cases and see how they differ from like we've seen Betty and Barney Hill, Travis Walton's story. What other ones have we covered? Abduction? Oh, we did one like when we first started. We did Betty and Barney Hill. You know, I don't know that we've done any other abductions. I feel like we have. Those are the only ones I can think of off the top of my head. Head. I can't think of any other ones either. I don't know if technically Serpo counts as an alien abduction, but... It's not abduction if you go willingly. That was like okay. a... They went willingly. Okay. But in any event, we've covered at least one North American abduction, <laughs> and therefore we need to look at the rest of the world now. Good. It's about time. We're going to start off our exotic tour in the South American country of Brazil. Oh, nice. Yes. And we're going back to October 15th, 1957, when Antonio Boa, who was a 23-year-old Brazilian farmer, was working at night to avoid the hot temperatures of the day. He was plowing his fields near São Francisco de Sale when he saw what he described as a, quote, red star, end quote, in the night sky. The star approached his position, growing in size until it became recognizable as roughly a circular or egg-shaped aerial craft, with a red light at its front and a rotating cupola on top. The craft began descending to land in the field, extending three legs. Boa first attempted to leave the scene on his track but when its lights and engine died after traveling only a short distance, he decided to continue on foot. However, he was eventually seized by a five-foot-tall humanoid wearing a gray coverall and helmet. Its eyes were small and blue, and instead of speech, it made noises like barks or yelps. Three similar beings then joined the first in subduing Boa, and then dragged him inside their craft. Once inside the craft, Boa was stripped of his clothes and covered from head to toe with a strange gel, and he was then led into a large semicircular room through a doorway that had strange red symbols written all over it. In this room, the beings took samples of Boa's blood from his chin, which is a very weird place to draw blood. That would be the last place I think I would go for, for blood. You know what? There's not many worse spots, like maybe the elbow. (laughs) Yeah. Or like the kneecap. I was just going to say kneecap. <laughs> no, that's pretty bad. 
I'm not a nurse, though. No, if any nurses want to give us an opinion on this, I would <laughs> gladly hear it. Chin, yes or no? <laughs> yeah. Chin, like, where would it rank? <laughs> After this, he was then taken to a third room and left alone for around half an hour, and during this time, some kind of gas was pumped into the room, which made Boas become violently ill. Shortly after this, Boa claimed, and sorry, I keep saying Boas, Boa, this B-O-A-S, and I'm not sure in Portuguese if the S is silent or not. So, he's not a snake. His name is Boa or Boas, so I'm gonna butcher it equally in both directions. So Boas claimed that he was joined in the room by another humanoid. This one, however, was female, very attractive, and naked, hence how he knew it was female. Or, you know, he kind of just assumed because, I guess, we just assume that other alien species are going to have the same genitalia as us. True, could have been male. That's their male. Could have been some sort of weird third or fifteenth sex that they have. It's true, yeah, good point. She was the same height as the other beings he had encountered, with a small pointed chin, probably from having its blood drawn all out. I was just going to say. And large blue cat like guys. It makes a lot of sense now why they drew it from the chin. It was too wide. <laughs> it wasn't actually for experimenting. They were giving him plastic surgery. The hair on her head was long and white, somewhat like platinum blonde, but her underarm and pubic hair were bright red. Boa said he was strongly attracted to the woman, and the two had sexual intercourse. That term is highlighted, I assume. I got this from Wikipedia, so I'm assuming it was meant to take you to the <laughs> for sexual intercourse. Oh, as an external link, okay. The female did not kiss him, but instead nipped him on the chin. This is a very chin-oriented society. Yeah, no kidding. That is bizarre. Are. How much chins are coming up? Never encountered anything like it. And when it was all over, the, the female smiled at Boa, rubbing her belly and gestured upwards. Boa took this to mean that she was going to raise their child in space. Okay. The female seemed relieved that their task was over. <laughs> so she did not enjoy it at all. <laughs> And Boas himself said that he felt angered by the situation because he felt as though he had been little more than a good stallion for the humanoids. <laughs> Boa said that he was then given back his clothing and taken on a tour of the ship by the humanoids, and during this tour, he said that he attempted to take a clock-like device as proof of his encounter, but was caught by the humanoids and prevented from doing so. He was then escorted off the ship and watched as if it took off, glowing brightly, and when Boas returned home, he discovered that four hours had passed. I really like that he was kicked out of the ship for, like, shoplifting, more or less. For stealing a clock. I'm gonna steal this clock. Hey, hey, yeah, no, this... leave. Okay, can you imagine if he got away with the clock and he was like look at this clock i got abducted and you're like yeah it's a clock <laughs> and just so that we're on the same page like visually i'm picturing like a cuckoo clock big old german style so am I. good <laughs> or like a grandfather clock <laughs> look at this clock i was abducted and you're like okay that doesn't prove i didn't keep that cuckoo clock on the wall well let me tell you a story <laughs> Definite conversation. It's just like that grandpa who rolled that car because of the skinwalker. Yes, it is. Boa later becomes a lawyer, marries, has four kids, and he stuck that the story happened as he explained it up until his death on January 17th, 1991. I mean, could you go back on it? I really don't think you could, but maybe at some point if it really was a ruse that you were having, you might just say, you know what, I just want to go back to a normal life, but I don't know. Okay, true. You're not the guy that tried to steal a clock off of a spaceship. Yeah. Okay. That's the story. There was a bit of an I investigation. I would summarize that one with chins and clocks. 
Yes. Chinning clock one. Abduction. Okay. Okay, there's an investigation. I used far too many words when two could have done. <laughs> yeah. So following this event, Boas claimed to have suffered from nausea and weakness, as well as headaches and lesions on the skin, which appeared without any kind of light bruising. Eventually, he contacted journalist Jose Martins. Just assume that I said that impeccably in a Portuguese accent, because Martins sounds very English. Mm-hmm, it does. Who had placed an ad in newspapers looking for people who had experience with UFOs. Upon hearing Boas' story, Martins contacted Oliva Fonte of the National School of Medicine in Brazil, and Fonte was also in contact with the American UFO research group APRO, which I think is now defunct, but it was the 1950s, so... Mm-hmm. examined the farmer and concluded that he had been exposed to a large dose of radiation from some source and was now suffering from mild radiation sickness. According to researcher Peter Rogerson, the story first came to light in February of 1958, and the earliest definite print reference to Boa's story was April to June 1962 issue of the Brazilian UFO periodical SBESDV Bulletin. That would be a Portuguese abbreviation, so no idea on that. Rogerson noted that the story had definitely circulated between 1958 and 1962, was probably recorded in print, but that details are uncertain. Boa was able to recall every detail of his purported experience without the need of hypnotic regression, which is different than the Betty and Barney Hill story. And the experience happened in 1957, which is also several years before the Betty and Barney Hill story. So you can't say that that one influenced this one. Like there was no TV and even then he was a farmer. Sorry, did you say that he came out with it or he said that it happened prior to that? The earliest you can say that he started talking about it was 58, but okay. in any event, the Betty and Barney Hill happened in the 60s. And that's the one that kind of revolutionized. Oh yeah, they saw the Betty and Barney Hill story, so they made something up yeah. similar to that. They were kind of the first mainstream abduction. Okay, okay. Yeah. And huh. researcher Peter Rogerson, however, doubts the veracity of Bo's story. He notes that several months before Bo was first related his claims, a similar story was printed in the November 1957 issue of the periodical O Cruzeiro, and suggests that Boa borrow details of this earlier account, along with elements of the contactee story of George Adamski, which we might do at a later date. Mm-hmm. But that's the Brazil chin cat clock story. It wasn't a bad one. I do like that one. And I like that we can keep with C's and can move on to another C of China next. But Chelsea, do you have any questions about that story? Anything you want to say? No, I've been saying it as we go. Okay, so this story happens in the early 90s, actually, so it's relatively recent. That shows our age, I think, that we think that that's recent. (laughs) When you look at abductions, most of the famous ones happen in the 60s and 70s. (laughs) Okay, okay. From the perspective of UFOs, it's relatively recent. I still think of the 90s as like 10 years ago. (laughs) Yeah. Anyhow. Name of the main character in this story, Zhao Guomeng. Zhao Guomeng is a simple farmer and a woodcutter with a fifth grade education. And apparently this came up in several articles, so it must be important. No record of untrustworthiness, for it is China. <laughs> Keep records of untrustworthiness. <laughs> 1993, he is 26 years old, and he and other villagers notice something sticking out of the side of a mountain in the distance. It's the Phoenix Mountains. I can't remember the name of the province. I think it comes up later, though. Mung and his niece's husband want to investigate, thinking that a helicopter may have crashed and they could scavenge something from the wreckage. Mung later describes seeing a large oval object with a long tail, totally smooth, with no discernible doors, a giant spacecraft. Mung and his relatives moved closer, and when they were about 150 meters away, they felt a surge running through them, like electric 
electricity, paralyzing them as if walking against an invisible barrier. Some sort of force field surrounded the craft. Later, Mung said a beam of light struck him and he fell to the floor. When Mung visited a doctor, he felt electricity surging through him again when the stethoscope was placed on his chest. And in fact, anything metal would set off his reaction for hours after the incident. After a few days, one night he found himself floating above his bed with his wife and daughter beneath him sleeping, and a three meter tall alien with fur covered legs and six fingers was over him. Mung said that the female alien had been copulating with him for over 40 minutes when the creature finished having pleasure. She left an unusual two inch long scar on Zhao Guo's thigh which was not caused by any surgery or normal injury as described by doctors. This next statement, I could not find the image associated with it, but I'm very curious if it's out there. I just could not find it. Jaguo drew a sketch of the creature, and apparently it looked like a sketching of a hairy cousin of the Michelin Man, <laughs> which I don't know if that means it actually looked like that, or maybe he's just a bad sketcher. <laughs> Jaguo also stated a month after this erotic encounter with the alien, he found his body passing the ceiling of his home once again. He said that he flew through the stratosphere into a spaceship where he saw several aliens talking in Chinese. They said in Chinese, but with a heavy accent so it was hard for him to understand that they were refugees and they wanted to escape their former lives so they left their dying home. While on board, these aliens urged him to see his alien lover one more time. Their request was denied by Mung. And the aliens also told him that in 60 years on the faraway planet, which I think they said was doomed, his alien human hybrid son would be born. 60 years? 60 years, yeah. That's a hell of a gestation period. Earth years, maybe. I assume Earth years. Okay, so that could be nine months in that planet. You never know. Could be 60 years on that planet is nine months here. Who knows? But... Yeah. I assume they're talking about Earth years because they're talking to him and he'd have no way of knowing their planet. Yeah, in any that's way. true. True, true. When you're talking about time with aliens, it gets really weird because we base all of our time telling technologies or references on events on Earth. Yeah. And it's only relevant here. The aliens were dressed in head to toe curious black cloaks with no seams. They also said that they were there to escape danger and to observe you and your planet. They then showed Mung some kind of screen and it was showing a comet hitting Jupiter, which was really weird, but whatever. Like just for fun? This was a rare celestial phenomenon which did actually take place on July 17th, 1994, when comet oh, okay. Shoemaker-Levy 9 crashed into Jupiter. This has been cited by believers of Mung as evidence of the truthfulness of his story because you know, he was a peasant Chinese farmer, so he definitely have really no way of knowing or seeing that outside of yeah. being shown by somebody else. Mung also said that the aliens visited him once again in 2016 and they gifted him part of the comet that hit Jupiter. <laughs> and the rock the aliens supposedly gifted him in 2016 was later analyzed and said to be an extremely rare precious metal called terbium. I only found that in some of the stories, so I don't know the veracity of that. I also didn't look into what terbium is. So, since this story took place, Mung has gone through several lie detector tests. According to some sources, he was telling the truth. And also after that, he has never seen aliens. But again, the story kind of changes depending on who you're talking to. Yeah, um, especially that last part. Of course, except for if you're dealing in giants, then the story yes. is exactly the same every time. When his alien abduction story reached the media, he received many gifts from people, which included a cow, a TV, and a job in what? Harbin City. Yeah. A cow and a job? Wow. Yeah. I know, this okay. guy hit the jackpots. Um, that's generally not what happens with UFO No, that's the opposite. Here. 
Yeah. I'm so proud of him. That's yeah. nice. I don't know what to think of that one. I mean, that... There's a bit more to the story, too. Okay. Now, news of Mung's extraordinary encounter in 1994 quickly spread, and investigators from the country's then burgeoning UFO clubs descended on the small logging community. When they reached the suspected landing site of the spaceship, they found scorch marks on the surrounding trees, some rocks split into pieces, and they stated that we guessed it was from an aircraft landing or taking off. And the first chairman of the Beijing UFO Research Organization, which was established in the 1980s, told this story basically in January after this took place. And during the same investigation, Wang Feng Chen, again, that director, recalls how a researcher with the Chinese Academy of Scientists brought a Geiger counter along to Meng's home, but found that the instrument for measuring radiation went haywire and wouldn't take an accurate reading near the wall where aliens supposedly entered Meng's home. He said, quote, I saw this with my own eyes and I can't explain this phenomenon, end quote. The story was first reported in local magazines and made Meng a minor celebrity during the time when curiosity about UFOs and science fiction and the universe was beginning to boom in China. As the economy and society opened in the 1980s and 90s, as media control loosened, science magazines and journals spread across the country and soon enthusiasts founded clubs and associations for UFO research with tens of thousands of members. However, over time, actually, Chinese UFO research falls off and I have a separate episode that's actually going to go a bit over that. That's going to come out in the new year. Oh, that sounds fun. Meng's story was fantastical, but at least some of China's new UFO enthusiasts believed him, and a number of organizations even sent research teams to the site where the alien ship had supposedly landed, and also of to Meng's home to get the full story from him. His story is still probably the most famous UFO sighting in China and one of the most investigated and discussed. It turned Phoenix Mountain and Heilongjiang into a pilgrimage site for UFO enthusiasts in China, and some of whom have also reported sightings of identified flying objects in the sky, including two allegedly caught on camera in 2005 and 2012. I couldn't find that footage. His story has also been widely mocked, as they usually are. Meng Guo has no credibility. Local leaders have said he's mad, said former Secretary General of the Beijing UFO researcher Zhou Xiaocheng. And he said this in a Story FM podcast, quote, lots of the people who went to investigate already believed him, so they were easily led astray. Which I can also see if it's kind of a new thing that's happening in China. Yeah. I did find that really interesting. I can't cover it all in this episode because I want to keep it for that later episode, but how it did start out in the early 90s UFO investigations in China and then was kind of squashed away fairly quickly after that. Sounds about right. Once you hear the story behind it, it's going to be very interesting. Oh, okay. Well, based on just what you told me right it's now... It's not just because they're a dictatorship. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, that's not foreshadowing. That's just like a teaser. I'm intrigued on that. Is that all the story? That's the end of that story, yes. I don't know. That one sounds credible. The hard part is because it is such a unique and different language than ours, and China is a more closed-off society than a lot of Mm -hmm. North America. The story is told several different ways, with some parts maybe being a little fabricated. Like, my instinct is that last little bit isn't true about that 2016 meeting. Potentially that part about the comet crashing into Jupiter or two because it ties in with that 2016 meeting i didn't find it in every story so i don't know if it's part of the original story but nonetheless i like the juxtaposition of the two aliens that we've seen a small cat-like chin-oriented society and a furry michelin man group i always love just looking for the next sci-fi blockbuster about aliens fighting i would love to see it yeah (laughs) and i'm excited to hear what we have next 
Unless okay. that's it. No, there is one more. And this is the one I wasn't really sure how to geographically orient it or if geographically orienting would be the best way to do it. Right. Because this okay. takes place during a race called the Vuelta de America del Sur, which is the South American tour. It's a car race that basically goes all the way around South America. Oh, interesting. The team that we're going to be focusing on is out of Chile and the events take place in Argentina. But this okay. the South American Here's tour starts in Buenos Aires and you drive to Caracas in Venezuela in the north and then you have to drive down the Pacific coast down Chile and then back up to Argentina and Buenos Aires to finish it. It really fits international. <laughs> Couldn't be more international. Okay. So the race starts on August 17th of 1978 and the events that we're going to be discussing happen in September. So like on September 23rd. Wow. Okay, very very long race. So like it's a, uh, you're committed to this You've race. You've got to take like a sabbatical from work to be a well, I think you get paid for this. I think they're yeah. professional drivers. Oh, really? Yeah. Like limo drivers. Sure, why not? It's a race. <laughs> okay. The team in question is Carlos Acevedo and Hugo Prams. And this is usually referred to as the Pedro Luro UFO abduction. And I was like, well, neither of those guys' names is Pedro Luro. I don't get why it's called that. It turns out that the city takes place in his Petro Lura. Okay, then my yeah. next option was going to be that was the alien's name. So these two leave Buenos Aires on August 17th, 1978. As part of the South American Rally's first stage, Hugo Prams left the city of Bariloche on September 16th. He couldn't participate in the race anymore due to personal issues, and he's replaced by Miguel Angel Moyo. On September 23rd, in the early morning, Acevedo and Moya complete the final 1,000 kilometers of the rally. They stopped at the ACA post in Viedma, uh, in the province of Ronegro, around 2 a.m. to refuel. They filled the standard 50-liter tank and an additional 40-liter tank. They had coffee and chatted with some of the competitors for a short while. After crossing the Rio Negro and passing through the town of Carmen de Patagones, Citroën number 102, which is the name of their car, was back on the road to Bahia Blanca at 2.30 a.m. in the morning. 2.30 a.m. I do not need in the morning there. <laughs> They were at the height of the Salitral del Algarobo and Salina de Pedro, about 30 kilometers north of the city of Carmen de Patagones, by 3 o'clock, after leaving the intersection of Route 3 and the local roads that led to Cardinal Cagliero. I think we're getting to the end of where I have to butcher Spanish, so just bear with okay. us for a little while. The Citrion's driver at the wheel was Carlos Acevedo, and he abruptly noticed a bright light in his car's rearview mirror. The light was dim and yellowish, and it was initially just a dot in the mirror, but it gradually grew more prominent. At the moment, Acevedo and Moya moved at almost 100 kilometers an hour, and the light was coming on quickly despite this. Acevedo assumed they were the headlights of a competitor, so he decided to significantly slow down and stay to the right side of the asphalt strip to allow the car to pass. The light was already visible in the rearview mirror and was advancing quickly. Acevedo and Moya's Citroen passenger area was filled with light at once. And this is direct quotes from Acevedo. Viedma is 30 kilometers away. I notice a dense yellow and violet light approaching me in the rearview mirror. And sorry, I assume this was translated. I don't think he spoke English, so... Okay. Apologies, but that's where we're going. Given the speed, I initially believed it to be a car traveling at about 300 kilometers an hour. Totally reasonable. <laughs> okay, yeah, exactly. I made an effort to yield, which I would do also to a 300 kilometer an hour car. <laughs> you wouldn't even see that coming. <laughs> no. Do you think he saw a skinwalker? Or that, or he rolls down the window to talk to it like the girl yep. who saw the Mothman <laughs> roll down the window. 
So he made an effort to yield and move to the left, and then light flooded the cabin. We could only see as far as the car's hood. It was intensely bright and yellow with hints of violet. The car seemed to be out of control at that precise moment. We were six feet away from the asphalt when I peered out the window. So I think that means he was like floating six feet in the air. Okay, I was gonna say, like, I wouldn't be measuring how far away I was from the road if I was still on the road. Yeah, and I don't think it means he went into the ditch. No, because... Okay, I could see why you would say, okay, okay. I don't understand the <laughs> sentence. I think this is something of a translation error, but this is his next part of the story. I immediately thought we had jumped on the back of a donkey, and I immediately began to fly, bracing myself for the eventuality that we would make contact with the asphalt once more. But instead of going down, the car appeared to be climbing uncontrollably. Nope, that doesn't make sense, especially the donkey nope. part. But I think, I'll think all we need from that is he is floating upwards. <laughs> Yeah, okay. I did grasp that. After a few seconds, maybe five or ten, I don't know, as I was reacting, I became aware that this was utterly abnormal. I wanted to recheck the view out the window, but all I saw was this obtrusive light. What's up? I remember shouting, but Moya did not respond. My partner wasn't there when I looked to my right, or at least I couldn't see him. I couldn't even see the dashboard, to be honest. I just noticed that light, a dense thing that looked like a liquid, I don't know, something sticky. Moya also has a bit of a report of what happened. I don't know how long it was, maybe a minute or two, but I felt a slight jolt, and I knew immediately that the car was back on the road. The yellow light appeared to dim at that precise moment, and I gradually gained the ability to see my surroundings, including the dashboard and the car's hood. We were stopped entirely on the shoulder on the wrong side of the road, to the left of the road, when I peered out the window and saw the land. The light abruptly vanished, and I observed it travel towards the west. It resembled a cone of yellow light, but it was truncated rather than ending in a point. It would be six, maybe seven meters high with four or five meters wide base and a top two or three meters high. Although you couldn't see the base, see, you, although you couldn't see what the base was illuminating because it wasn't visible through the light, it lit up the surrounding area. Short while later, the light, how should I put it, retreated? The only thing visible after or that rose like a curtain from bottom to top was an oval of yellowish white light that continued toward the west before dissipating into the sky. Everything happened at once, leaving us alone on the road. We looked at each other, but were unable to communicate with one another. It was difficult to breathe because I was numb. My hands were shaking. My chest was tight. And that's the end of their uh, statements. Acevedo and Moya remained motionless briefly, unable to move or do anything. Finally, Acevedo exited the car to check that everything was in place, he states. He quickly reboarded the car, and they promptly continued north on Route 3. The Chilean crew of Citroën number 102 traveled for 15 minutes before arriving in Pedro Luro, a city 123 kilometers north of Carmen de Patagones in the province of Buenos Aires. The odometer indicated that they had traveled 52 kilometers from the city of Viedma to Pedro Luro when the actual distance between the two locations is 127 kilometers. Oh, did they win the race then? There's a 75 kilometer discrepancy on how far they should have traveled on the odometer, which is really interesting. I hope that put them ahead in the race. We're going to get to that, don't you worry. And not like further behind in the race. On the other hand, they arrived in Pedro Luro at 5.10 a.m., having left the urbanized area of Carmen de Patagones at around 2 a.m. They also discovered the secondary tank, which they had filled up at that check stop at 2 a.m. with 40 liters of gasoline was empty. 
Eves. And as if that weren't enough, they showed up at the control where the race finishes two hours early, right after the vehicle oh. arrival desk had been set up. They won. They finished the race labeled as a regular in the race results. The witnesses became even more perplexed as their fear increased due to the reported facts. They decided to report the UFO incident to the Pedro Luro police. Official Inspector Daniel Osami diligently looked after them and they gave him the specifics of what occurred. A week after the incident, the political focus magazine Somos featured an illustration of the car illuminated by an alleged UFO with the headline, quote, and this is the English version of the headline, obviously, the strange case of the flying car on its cover. The letter also contains a complaint to Acevedo and Moya in which they retell the UFO incident with a Pedro Luro police officer. This is a quote from the officer about the interrogation or the talk about what happened. They were about to cry when Acevedo desperately grabbed the head while Moya could not speak and appeared paralyzed. Official Inspector Jorge Osimi, who had been called to the scene by the station's night watchman gave his assurance. The case was obscure until 2000 when Chilean journalist Patricio Bados spoke with Miguel Angel Moya about his UFO abduction. The co-pilot recalled that when the car's lights turned on, quote, a long corridor with doors on both sides appeared. We were making progress through those doors. The light was visible. Carlos was screaming and I knew he was there. When we reached the end of the hallway, a dome was there. The light rotated from a sign that hung there. Two creatures came towards us. It looks like Martians got us, idiot. I said in response to Carlos, what's wrong question. He returned to the car after the entire scene vanished at that point and they were disqualified from the race due to the unusual event that the two Chilean drivers led in the middle of the rally in Argentina. The organizers believed they had engaged in cheating, but there was no way to prove it. And the Argentine Air Force personnel who interrogated the pilots in Buenos Aires later asked them to describe the incident in detail. I think pilots might be the wrong word there, drivers probably better. They took the clothing they were wearing the day of the incident and ultimately asked them not to comment on what had happened so as to not alarm the population, according to Acevedo and Moya. That's the actual event itself. There's a bit more to the story from there. The cover of the Bulletin UFO Press, October 1978, Inspector Jorge Osimi claimed that despite extreme nervousness when testifying at the Pedro Luro police station, the witnesses were fully aware of their mental faculties. Osimi checked the auxiliary fuel tank for cracks or holes, so the disappearance of the 40 liters of fuel had no known cause. Police Corporal Yes Garza claimed to have seen how anxious the witnesses were on the Pedro Luro Bahia Blanca tour, and they hardly said a word to one another. Acevedo was momentarily startled when a car trailing the Citroen flashed its high beams to signal. The watchman at the gas station, Hector Forchesetto, was the first to contact the witnesses following the incident. They appeared to be very anxious, especially La Moya, he observed. He recalls hearing them talk about the issue of gas mileage and running out of fuel. In Forchesetto's opinion, the witnesses were sincere and the disquiet and bewilderment they revealed were impossible to fake. And Forchesetto claimed that between 4.30am and 4.15am, Akasubi residents saw a powerful intense yellow light move quickly in a western direction. And that's the end of that tale. I like that one as well. That was a good one. I like that there's a lot of hard facts to look at, like the fact the odometer was off and gas is missing. Yeah. And obviously there are ways to fake that, but they got disqualified. So why would you, I guess you're trying to come up with a reason to stay in the race maybe, but I don't know. It's an interesting story. True. I mean, if I was trying to stay in the race, I probably would have said, oh, I don't know. That might be a reason I would give perhaps. But I like that one. But that is our tour abroad of UFO abductions. We really got around South America. Yeah, we did. And that last one really got around South America. Yeah. I think those were some good ones. It was about time we got to some otherworldly within our world 
abductions. And that goes along with whatever episode we just did about international ghosts. Yes, we're really culturing everyone. Yeah, it's about time. We've really taken a back seat in the last little while, I think, for small talk topics at fancy events. Yeah. And, and it's good we got back to our roots here. It's true. <laughs> that is our root. Yeah, that's what people need us for. Okay, I know. I know. That should be a major focus is helping you out in awkward social situations where you have nothing to talk about. I've brought up Vegetable Man a remarkable amount of times since we did that episode. And still no more friends. Nope. <laughs> not a one. <laughs> Tell them it doesn't work, Chelsea. <laughs> that's not how this works. <laughs> Shit. I mean, it definitely made me We have so many friends now. I have too many friends to choose from. I just can't choose. Anyway, abductions. I like that episode. That was great. And if you too wish to have just as many friends as us, send us $5 via e-transfer to the email that you'll hear shortly. Anyhow, I have been Taylor here with Chelsea. We are Journey to the Fringe. Thank you all for listening and we'll see you next week. Bye. Thank you for listening to Journey to the Fringe. If you have liked what you have listened to, please like, share, subscribe, or follow, depending on what venue you are listening to us through. Also, please, if possible, leave a five-star review, as that really helps us in the algorithms. Should you wish to interact with us, please check us out on your social media of choice. I bet you we are there. And if you really want to communicate with us and give us ideas for new episodes, or tell us that we're wrong and terrible, either way, please send us an email at journeytothefringe at gmail.com. For now, I'll see you in the next episode. Uh